Victim to Heartstopper, a history of British LGBT film and television. Welcome to this podcast charting the history of LGBT theme stories and characters throughout British film and television. So, why this and why now? Well, on finishing the excellent Heartstopper on Netflix, I was struck by the journey this community has come through on film and television. LGBT characters have seen a real seismic shift in the way they are portrayed, and it feels like Heartstopper marks a real moment. There have been many of those huge moments over the past 60-odd years, and over the coming episodes of this podcast, I want to look at these, have a chat about them, and hopefully have some fun along the way with some lovely guests from the world of entertainment, film and TV. But first, let me introduce our special guests for today. Well, my co-host on this uh, podcast is going to be the wonderful and amazing comedian and broadcaster that is Scott Agnew. Good morning or welcome, Scott. Good day. How are we? Very well, thank you. And we have playwright and author Michael McManus. Hello. Uh, Joyous as ever. And (laughs) our special guest today... um, is one of Britain's foremost drag artists and queen of cult movies, Bunny Galore. How are you, Bunny? I'm very well, boys. How are we? Are we all feeling good and raring to go? Absolutely fabulous. Feeling great. All the better for seeing you, Bunny. (laughs) I have that effect on most gentlemen. (laughs) Wonderful, wonderful. Looking forward to this this little chat we're going to have. So, Michael, give us a bit of context then. Michael has uh, written several books on this subject and is a bit of an expert on... Uh, the legality and the legal history of the LGBT community. So if you were a a member of the LGBT community in 1961, what was life like? Well, the the legal situation was pretty grim. Uh, The Conservative Party was in power um, and had no interest at all in improving the situation for for homosexual men. Uh, Rather reluctantly, in the 1950s, in the mid-1950s, the government of the time, Uh, had commissioned the Wolfenden Report, which was a gathering of the great and the good, looking at the legal situation for gay men. Uh, They were very clear from the outset that uh, homosexuality was a bad thing, uh, but they they struggled really at a very high level with the question whether something uh, being a sin meant that it should also be a crime. And the Wolfenden Committee, despite being rather conservative in makeup, recommended decriminalisation of homosexual acts between uh, men over 21 in private. So quite a narrow recommendation of decriminalisation. They reported in 1957. Now, I think in the context of what we're discussing, uh, probably more interesting is the action of the Lord Chamberlain a year later, because until 1958, any depiction of homosexuality on stage or screen was not allowed, none at all. Now, the the first shift came in November 1958, when the Lord Chamberlain rather reluctantly agreed, under pressure from wonderful Joan Littlewood at Stratford East, uh, to allow very limited portrayal of homosexuality on the stage or the screen. And the interesting thing, of course, in those days, that stage really mattered. uh, And and the breakthrough was actually driven by Stratford East uh, for the play A Taste of Honey, which became a film in 1961. Now, the de- what was allowed was very, very strictly defined. Uh, any portrayal of homosexuality had to be, I quote, serious and sincere. There was no humour to be made about homosexuality, no innuendo, no proselytising. The word pansy was allowed. The word bugger was not allowed. 
So you know, we're talking about a very tightly defined uh, <laughs> restriction of the portrayal of, of gay people. But ha had that not happened, there would have been no victim and there would have been no A Taste of Honey. So what you're seeing is a very, very slow shift. The first meaningful debate in the House of Commons about the Wolfenden report was 1958. There wasn't a vote, uh, but there clearly was no movement at all. In 1960, there was a vote and 99 members of parliament voted for implementation of the Wolfenden recommendation of decriminalisation, uh, mainly Labour MPs and Liberals, but about 20 Tories, including Margaret Thatcher, uh, in 1960 voted in favour. So you have a sense of, of movement and also I think of inevitability and acceptance that this change was going to come. But, you know, these are the first little flickers that we're discussing today. Excellent. Thanks, Michael. Um, in terms of culture, uh, Bunny, from your knowledge of, of film and TV, uh, where do you think we were culturally with the LGBT community at this time? I think Michael's totally right. I think things were bubbling along there. Uh, suddenly last uh, summer, uh, the I think that came that came out in 1959, I think, and that got cleared by the uh, code in America. They could use the storyline of homosexuality, but again, it could it couldn't be in a, <laughs> surprise surprise in a positive way. It had to be like the uh, sort of uh, vilified, like that it's he's um, it's a bad thing. But they got they got it passed, and they got it past the censors. So um, I think it. Putting ourselves back into that world must, it's such a strange mind because things since we've been, and I'm, I'm probably older than most of you, but the, the world's changed so much since uh, we were teenagers. Seismically, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years, I think, culturally. And normally things are reflected in the, the media of the time, whether that be film, but because there was this pressure cooker of the Hayes report and the Hayes, the Hayes code and everything on top of everything, we're not really seeing uh, a reflection of reality. I think we're seeing a very um, stifled version of that. So you just see these odd bursts of steam coming through, uh, which I think builds up and then becomes what, what we get with victim. And I whether they were having the, um, more of a, a civil rights in America, we were having this argument in the UK, uh, probably. I think that was probably more forethought for us because of uh, people being blackmailed and sort of, I'm sure there was a lot of cases in the newspapers of the time that it was, it was coming into people's lives more. Um, but it must, I can't get over how stark victim is and how much of a shock it must have been at the time. Because mm. it yeah. must have, it's nothing like it around it. There is afterwards, but nothing really that, you know, there's a lot of queer coding going on in films up to that point, um, but nothing quite as overt as that. So I'm just, one, I would love to have known what the reaction was at the time. I don't know the box office of the movie, and I, I don't know what people thought of it at the time. Mm. That, yeah, I mean, well, I did try to get uh, a hold of some people that were involved in it, and unfortunately, a lot of them, because of the age, have lot passed away. Mm. Sylvia Sims, unfortunately, is is not very well, um, and it's it's hard to get a kind of context on that. In terms of box office, I don't think it performed particularly well. Um, but in terms 
in terms of a context, just firstly before we move on, uh, I, I, I wanted to start with Victim because it does seem a, a marking point. It's the first time we had leading gay characters in a movie. It had a fairly big star in Dirk Bogard, who, of course, will, in future episodes we'll talk about again when Death in Venice comes up. Mm. Um, and um, it, it seemed a significant moment. The previous year in 1960, we had a film called The Trials of Oscar Wilde with Peter Finch. Mm. And... If you watch that, it's so diluted down that you would be forgiven for believing that Oscar Wilde went to jail for having a few walks in the park with a young man. You know, it really <laughs> doesn't, doesn't give you any kind of hint of what Oscar Wilde actually did and what was going on at the time. So Victim does seem to be a, a significant moment in terms of, of this road, and it seems to be a, a significant starting point. Please Scott, you're going to speak, say something. I, no, I, I kind of read something last night, uh, Whilst it wasn't a box office success, it actually wasn't. It also wasn't awful either. It kind of done all right. So I washed its face, kind of thing. So mm-hmm. the uh, so what I kind of heard about it. Um, but I mean, I, I was completely fresh to it. I watched it for the first time last night, which is kind of my role. This is kind of how this started. Means me and Charlie were having discussions about uh, films that I'd seen and films we hadn't seen. Um, and, and I think that there's about ten to twelve years age difference between me and Charlie. Um, and so when I came out, we were just fresh off the back of Queer as Folk, so it was almost like I didn't need to go back and look at anything else, you know? This felt like such a representation. So, mm-hmm. And then I was off living my own life, you know? Um, so I, I hadn't gone back into the, sort of the catalogue and looked into, into the, the history of things, um, or, certainly on film. I was very aware of our history, but on film, and I found that I was... Just, I was it was quite a, yeah, what you said was really stark. It was very. It's quite sobering, isn't it? The film. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's a lot of hope in there. There's still, it's still quite a positive film in a way, but I think that it's shot like Baby Jane. It's shot like a, um, like a sort of uh-huh. stark. It's stark in that sense. Yes. There's a lot of film noir lighting going on there. And it's, it's, you know, it's a signaling that it's a serious movie and it's very, very serious. And it is a serious movie. But it Michael. makes kind of uncomfortable viewing, I think, in 2022, when we're watching yeah. it at the moment. Uh, it's a bit like the original version of Boys in the Band. Um, even when I watched these films, I probably watched them in the late 80s, early 90s, I think, pre-Queer as Folk. And it was um, and I, I, it was kind of a... I didn't like it. I, did, I kind of didn't like them because it, it reminds you of a, time, a really quite a bad time. Oh. Now, with much more distance... It's not as it's more culturally important, but at the time uh, back in the late eighties, early nineties, it was quite a yeah. It wasn't a very pleasant reminder of things that only just happened. Michael, the, the, the makers of Victim at the time very strenuously denied that there was a gay relationship in the film. They found it necessary to say that anyone who took that inference that was on their own head. That was not their intention. Um, so it gives you an idea of the sort of climate uh, that in which yeah. they're operating. Uh, and, and blackmail, the theme of blackmail is very important because blackmail was a big factor for the Wolfenden Committee because mm. a lot of people were being blackmailed and they're being blackmailed for doing things in private. Uh, and in 1962, the year after Victim, there was a very high-profile blackmail case of a civil servant called John Vassell who was stitched up by the KGB. Uh, They had photos of him with young men and he became a mole for the KGB. And that was a big factor in changing the law because essentially if you decriminalise, you can't blackmail somebody Mm -hmm. in that way. I mean, it it, it 
and, and blackmail was the only the only law protecting gay men at that time. You were you you know you, it was still a criminal offence to blackmail a gay man. Uh, so there was, in that sense, limited protection. But, uh, you know, so the theme of blackmail was very, very political and very relevant to the debate that was taking place. So I, I think victim should be seen not only in context as a piece of art, but it also is quite an influential piece of art. It, it, it tapped into the, the, the one of the most helpful for the reformers, one of the most helpful thoughts, which was that by changing the law, you could prevent a lot of perfectly decent, people from being blackmailed. Uh, just a, a little touch on Wolfenden, because we won't get another go at Wolfenden, probably. If you read the Wolfenden report, uh, they set out the different types of homosexual men. Uh, and there are five types. There's the adolescent and mentally immature adult, <laughs> um, severely damaged personality, uh, obviously effeminate, flauntingly exhibitionistic, perish the thought, um, latent and relatively well-compensated homosexuals, um, a homosexual predisposition coexisting with serious mental disability or disease. And then shock horror, homosexuality and relatively intact personalities. So, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise well socialized. Many of these are valuable and efficient members of the community. Quite unlike the common conception of the homosexual as being necessarily or probably vicious criminal, effete or depraved. <laughs> now, that is from the report that brought about decriminalisation. So it gives you a sense of what the debate was like at that time. I think, I think at some point in my life I've been all five of them. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes all at the same time. <laughs> I've just never been well compensated. That's about, yeah. I've not been. But I found that last night was what, what I found was really surprising that victim was, it was a it's it was a pretty kind of high class establishment to a group of people that they were they were talking about, which I found interesting. Um, that I, I I wasn't expecting. What would you say? Is it would have been seen at that time as some kind of you know a slur or an allegation? You know, it seemed very accepting that well, it's all nice chaps that get involved in this. You know, that that run the country, run the government. They're all you know. There was I found that quite surprising that they went for as as high a target, if you like, using the wrong word. But do you know what I mean? One of, one of the things that struck me or strikes me straight away is that the soundtrack immediately is ominous and it's it's. It's very dramatic, and you've got boy, Barrett boy, being chased by the police. And it immediately sets up this notion that you're thinking, well, what is this about? Is this guy involved in gangs, criminal underworld? It really sets it up to be something very serious. Um, and then, of course, the, the police investigation ensues. And apparently this is the most important investigation the police have got in the Metropolitan Police <laughs> <laughs> this time, because um, they seem to be putting a lot of effort into it and, and put a lot of um, just, uh, you know, a lot of um, time and, and effort spent on it. So it does have that sense at the start that it's, it's highly dramatic. But what I was surprised about was in t at times how balanced it was. You have the older policeman who actually is quite sympathetic and sets mm. the, uh, the opposing view that perhaps people could be left alone to live their lives. The younger, of course, he's Scottish and Presbyterian, um, <laughs> uh, is less, less sympathetic. And also what was interesting when Barrett talks to his, his friend 
and his girlfriend. It's the the male friend that's more sympathetic than the girlfriend. You know, and and we usually it's the the idea that the girls are more sympathetic, and actually it's the it's the opposite thing there. I thought little things like that were quite interesting. And did did we find it as balanced as or more balanced than you expected it to be? Funny. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I think we associate the uh, female being allies uh, in a modern way. I don't think. Well, they. I think possibly were back then as well, but they weren't really portrayed in, in film in the 60s in that way. It felt like they were always portrayed as being betrayal, betrayed by the homosexuality in the storylines, um, weirdly. Although I think, again, Liz Taylor in Study Last Summer, I think she's quite kind of understanding of the situation. It's strange, isn't it? It's The biggest thing about this for me is... Dirk Bogard taking this role on. He is the matinee idol of the 1950s. He's like, you know, the most beautiful man on camera, uh, known for very lightweight uh, performances. And obviously, I'm sure we'll get to this uh, gay in real life. But to take that risk in 1961 of being, um, playing this role, and obviously probably knowing exactly what he was taking on. And perhaps he thought he was untouchable at that point, or if he didn't work again, which he kind of didn't. And apart from these, very intelligent art movies that he did later on. Um, uh, he, he, but mainstream wise, he didn't really work again in that way. So perhaps he thought he didn't need to worry anymore. And he was at a position where he could help everybody that he knew. Interesting, isn't it? I don't know what his thoughts on it were, but he, he, he went on for a very long time afterwards, but I think that's so brave and so mm. courageous to, to, cause obviously, if that was that movie was made with anybody else, I don't think it would have had the same effect it would have done, because you've got the ultimate sort of, uh, well, the, not sex god of the cinema, but like the, the love god of the British cinema, uh, playing a homosexual in it. It must have been so um, bizarre at the time, but he, he did so much good just by doing that, and I think that's what changed a lot of people's perception because you've got such a sympathetic leading man that everybody loved um so the fact if he's doing it, it'd be like anton deck doing it now i know it sounds a strange uh connotation there but someone of the people that everybody everybody loves uh to, to do something as divisive as this i think is is really powerful really really powerful yeah it's um also it's interesting to know from from a personal point of view i grew up watching uh, tv when and obviously very aware of gay characters when they appeared on television or film None of them ever seemed good looking. None of them ever seemed sexy. And Scott and I have had this conversation before that the, the, the way to cope with homosexual characters on TV was to drain anything sexual from them. But Dirk Bogard, incredibly handsome man, and Peter uh, McHenry, who plays uh, Barrett, incredibly handsome young man as well. So you've got these two very attractive people playing these roles, which immediately sexualizes it. And I think that was quite bold and brave as well. Michael? Well, I think that explains why the filmmakers had to be so explicit in denying that there was a relationship between the two of them. Uh, it may well have been in the contracts with their agents. I don't know. Maybe. But, you know, Maybe. I think it was partly to protect the, the film um, from the unwelcome attentions of the Lord Chamberlain's men, uh, <laughs> but, but also, I suspect, to protect the careers of the actors in it. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you have uh, A Taste of Honey, coming out which you know was a kitchen sink play originally intended to be a novel written by a teenager Sheila Delaney uh, 
but you know, a very sympathetic, overtly camp gay character in that, who uh, effectively, you know, helps the, the abandoned pregnant woman by offering to be a kind of surrogate husband. So again, a sympathetic portrayal. But I mean, Murray Melvin is is not a sex symbol. I think it's fair to say. I mean, you know, he's 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 <laughs> he's not a he's a character actor. I think it's the nice way of putting it. <laughs> rather 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 sinister in in a way in his look, but sympathetically portrayed. Yeah, and it, it, it that was again a turning point. It was the same year, wasn't it? Sixty one, a taste of honey was the same year. Yeah. Um, and again, that that denotes a, a turning point in terms of these characterizations or these characters appearing on film and TV. Um. Scott, in terms of of, uh, of victim and the, and the way it plays out, what, how did you feel in terms of the storyline? Uh, again, this this notion of it being sympathetic. Did you feel, feel for, as a younger gay man born in the eighties, what were your views in terms of how how sympathetic it was it came across? And I, I was surprised by just kind of how sympathetic the whole thing was. I mean, there was obviously there was a lot of language used that that, that you, you kind of wouldn't. Have used today, and there was a lot of there was a lot of self hate, but you know, you know about it was a lot about being unnatural and uh, not, you know, uh, you know the 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 hand, you know, the the cruel hand that nature has played them and all the sorts of that. So there was, but that that was obviously that would have been part of the thinking, presumably at the time, if you were a gay man, that that was how you were socialized to think that you, you were abnormal, you know. I think they use a word an inverse, which is which I hadn't heard, you know. Um, but generally, I thought they were they were pretty sympathetic. They were relatively well rounded characters. They had friends. They had relationships. Um, they they had careers. They were doing well, you know. It, it, particularly when you see a film called Victim, I'm going to go. Oh, here we go. This is going to be, you know, some kind of poor kind of troll under a cupboard that happens to like a bit of Bobby every now and again, you know, and. The, but that that was that was what I thought we were coming to. But actually, we've got these well-to-do, professional, smart, uh, intelligent, witty people, and and also sort of peppered it enough that you could see that actually you were never ever too far from somebody giving you up or somebody not liking you. Like, but the, the, there's the barman uh, in the is it the Salisbury and. You know, as soon as their back's turned, he's, he's slating them and he doesn't like them. And you go, you know, and then also other other gay men giving you up as well um, to protect themselves. And you think, right, this is so. I had that. I had a really kind of nice sort of almost sort of spy Cold War feel to it. You know that. Um, yes, there's a lot of I think Nazi symbolism as well going on there. It's it's kind of like it feels like Berlin in the 30s a little bit right. at certain points as well, which is probably intentional, uh, or maybe that's just how they made um, sort of uh, dramas at that point. I don't know. Uh, it's funny how it's it's funny when you said about the the, the gay best friend character uh, it, it, that you get in Taste of Honey. It's like we didn't really. We, we, we were still dealing with that up until a few years ago. It seemed to be one of the, no matter how mainstream like Queer as Folk was or the American Queer as Folk or um, the L Word or anything like that that came out, it's still in mainstream cinema. It was still like the gay best friend in like things like My Best Friend's Wedding and things like that. It was still, which is great, obviously, it's a lovely film, but 
uh, I'm not shaming that, but it, it you didn't really get away from that until <laughs> I'd say in the last five, ten years. You see a line from Murray Melvin to James Dreyfus. <laughs> oh my God, yes, yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is, but also when you think about it, in in '61, the Carry On film started in '58 with uh, Kenneth Williams, Charles Hawtrey's in there, who are extremely, you know, uh, sort of what we would see as a feminine camp and you know very proud gay men obviously never talking about sort of homosexuality particularly i think part, i think in carry on regardless they get into drag i think but uh which is the second or third film but it's such a that's such a contrast <laughs> to this when you think so in like you know the, the queer coding has been going on for years and obviously those very uh, i think the the british way of looking at things though um and it's, this still goes on now i have this theory of uh, the you know the British public love uh, campery. They love a you know life. They love a entertaining you know fun uh, funsies uh, camp man. If you wear a suit, um, it's you know it's all it's great. You can go from Frankie Howard, Kenneth Williams, John Inman, uh, all the way up to Alan and everything. It's it's a you can see that timeline. Whether this much more serious timeline is more like oh a pop and um, back under the radar pop and back under the radar mm. until the late sixties. What's interesting is that the, the two villains are very villainous. Yes. The two villains are very bad. And in fact, simply what you say about the, the, the Nazi sort of parallels, yeah. Derek Nesbitt, who played the main villain, went on to carve a career playing Nazis in all yes. kinds of movies. So, yeah, I like that the, the two baddies were genuinely loathsome and that you were supposed yeah. to hate them and there was yeah. no sympathy yeah. for them or what they were doing. It's very Anne Frank at the end, isn't it? It's very, it's when they're, and you're, you're kind of cheering on the fact they they, they get arrested. It's because they're, they're really uh, nasty, but quite, which I, I love the fact they are that, you're right, that bad. It just make you feel, I hopefully that, therefore the, the, the people watching back in the day would have been much more sympathetic of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it's a film about blackmail. Mm, yes, it's not yeah. a film about being gay. It's a film about blackmail and the, and the fact that someone has to make a stand sooner or later, or else it just goes on and on and on. So mm. it you know there is something quietly heroic about the Bogart character because he's mm. the man who finally risks his own reputation and his relationship with his wife, which clearly matters to him. I think that's mm. that's an important factor in there. Whatever you make of it. But, you know, he's the man who makes the stand. Just in the context, since I'm supposed to be providing political context, one of my (laughs) um, fun things when I wrote my book about um, the the gay laws was finding some my favourite speeches in the House of Commons. And at the first discussion in 1958 of the the Wolfenden Report, um, a rather charming Labour MP called Jean Mann, MP for Coatbridge and Airdrie. I have to say, I think part of which became Gordon Brown's constituency later. said this, she, I couldn't imagine the miners lodgers welcoming a report which will mean that it will no longer be an offence to procure an adult male and set up a house in a mining village for a male friend. <laughs> I cannot see the cooperative women's guilds welcoming this or the town's women's guilds. An evil thread runs through the theatre, through the music hall, through the press and through the BBC. It has international ramifications. <laughs> so, it's always you're all right, dear. We don't want to move to our mining community. <laughs> you're, you're fine. Yeah, so it's scenario she was predicating all that on, but you know that that, that was the sort of thing people were saying. And and so for theatre or the film, it's not that dissimilar to, to the campaign against Section Twenty Eight, which we'll come to later. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 
it's kind of the, it's the wrong with the with the wrong people to be making the case. It's kind of they would say that, wouldn't they? And, and I think that that's why this rather nuanced film is so clever. Yeah, mm. and, and so that's just you know like like your your MP there for Erdogan Coatbridge is why you know homosexuality wasn't decriminalised until 1980 in Scotland. Do you know what I mean? So we had another good old chunk. I mean, I was. was uh uh-huh, yeah. I was I was born I was born illegal. I was born in November 1980, uh, and it was still illegal then. It didn't. I did not know that. Didn't happen until 1981, uh, and then so we had a bit. You know, so we get about two years of fun. Then you get the HIV crisis. Then you get Section 28. You know, there was a bit. There was about a, there was about a month and a half. It was good fun to be gay in Scotland. Charlie, that's all. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not convinced it's come back since then, really. But, uh... <laughs> Before we move on slightly from victim, I want to highlight how good Sylvia Sims is in it. She's fantastic yes. in the role. I love the line when she says, I'm, I'm not a life belt for you to cling on to. I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's wonderful. But she she gets the balance just right. She doesn't she doesn't go, you know, charging in there, you know, being accusatory and being negative. She's she understands, but she just wishes it wasn't her. How do we feel about Sylvia's performance? Oh, Sylvia's great in everything. She's just, she's always pitch perfect and very stoic and and just, and beautiful. I think, you know, on, on you know, on close up, she's just, she's got beautiful eyes and emotes wonderfully in anything she does. But particularly in this, I think she's, um, she's perf- pitch perfect in this. Look at the picture. There's as much pain in your face as there is in his. You haven't changed. In spite of our marriage and your inmost feelings, you're still the same. That's why you stopped seeing him. You felt for him what you felt for Stainer. That's not true. You were attracted to that boy as a man would be to a girl. Laura, Laura, don't go on. For God's sake, stop. Stop now. I can't stop. I love you too much to stop. I thought you loved me. If you do, what did you feel for him? I have a right to know. All right, you want to know. I shall tell you. You won't be content until you know, will you? Till you ripped it out of me. I stopped seeing him because I wanted him. Do you understand? Because I wanted him! And it carefully draws focus again away from the kind of political issues of the gayness to the domestic drama mm-hmm. of two people who clearly do love each other, uh, who, who are married principally because the law and his ambitions require it. But, you know, he, it isn't just her loving him and, and suffering because of it. I think you, you feel his very strong attachment to her. Mm-hmm. And, and no, as, as uh, Bunny says, she is always pitch perfect. Mm. Uh, and there was a nice thing that was that was done. She, she kind of almost, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the Diana, the, 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 there's three people in this marriage sort of thing. There's a, <laughs> there's a nice quote there. Yes, it that. is. Oh, my God, it is that situation. <laughs> yes. There's, there's not going to be room if you've got, you know, space in your heart for this this chap, you know. Um and I, and I like the fact that I mean, and I think that I think that's what added to it that the 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 the, uh, the Dirk character hasn't had sex with these with these men. You know, he's refrained. It's quite chaste, isn't it? It's oh. it's it's kind of that's probably more to do with how they made the film at the time. Was my it's a bit brief encounter that, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. The film yes. a brief yes. encounter rather than the play, where the, yes. there's obviously much rather more involved. But also because when we it easier maybe to get across to the general public that literally any one of you could end up blackmailed, you know, regardless of what you've actually done mm. or not done. You know, there was that 
that kind of foreboding that, you know, so just think on, you know, because that's only a photograph of him comforting a young man. You know? and, yeah. yeah, when we finally, we, we finally get to see the photograph and they hold it back. And, and I wonder if that was intentional because we finally get to see it. It's just two guys in a car. I mean, it's, it's completely mm. innocent and there's nothing at all about it that, that you would think, why on earth would anyone get blackmailed for that? Yeah. yeah. But that's exactly. a cultural thing, isn't it? That's a class thing. The, the thing is, not why are these two men in a car? Why is this high, highly established middle to upper class lawyer in a car with someone like that? That's the, the, that's the essence of what we're getting to, which is the problem in British society that if you were posh, you could be gay, you could get away with it. You felt yes. kind of protected yes. by your class. Yes, that seems to be a, a conceit that was uh, happened for a very long time, that the homosexuality was kind of okay if you were, had money and you went to private boarding schools and well, it was almost expected. That, I, I don't quite understand why that was, whether it was just because of the all-boys school thing, perhaps, that you had more bromances and that kind of thing going on, so even it was a bit blurrier there, perhaps. I don't know, but it was always... I, I mean, the very uh, crucial case was the Wild Blood case, mm. uh, which was in in the time of Wolfenden. Uh, you know, Peter Wildblood was was a playwright, uh, journalist. Uh, you know, they, they, it was they were all very, you know, upper middle class, and and therefore it attracted publicity because, uh, you know, it, it, <laughs> they they were public figures to some degree, and I think that creates a perception you don't hear about. The working class boy, no, you know, working the dilly who who, who gets a suspended sentence. You you hear about people yes. who belong to the peerage or the upper middle class who have, and of course Oscar Wilde. Maybe it comes Oscar from Wilde, that. Yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe it comes from because yeah. that's obviously much earlier and 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 culture had come into so many you know it started being films and TV show TV plays about it by that point. So maybe it comes from there. Yeah, and but, and just general yeah. sort of patriarchal societies, you know, whereby. The sort of ruling class, you know, keep their wives for, you know, reproduction and lower tasks and things, keeping the house clean and their boys for a right good time. That's just a kind of, that's a repeating thing during the centuries. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, I think, I'm sure that still happens quite a lot in politics right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh. During during the sixties and, and clearly and moving on slightly and and uh, Bonnie mentioned the carry on movies there was an awful lot of very high camp you know pretty gay humour out there um, as a little aside on radio we had round the horn with uh, Julian and Sandy who were were not you know if we knew Polari they were not alluding to it they were saying it <laughs> just no one yeah. got it. Um, and that that so it was out there, and the perception was that there was a shift happening. And in 1967, obviously, um, it was it was decriminalized. And then in 1968 came the killing of Sister George. Now, to be a lesbian was a different thing. I think that there there was a degree of apart from Queen Victoria apparently claiming at one point there was no such thing as lesbians. Um, that uh, <laughs> <laughs> by by a royal declaration. Um, but uh, to be a lesbian was a different thing. And uh, obviously we are, we are four gay men and, and come from a different point of view. But The Killing of Sister George was interesting uh, in that you have the, the, the idea or the premise is that uh, Beryl Reed plays Sister George, who's a character in a, in a soap opera, um, and she's she's found out she's going to get killed off. She's a long established, very Noel Gordon from Crossroads for those very, who very. get that reference. Um, <laughs> 
and and she's in a, a lesbian relationship with uh, with uh, Susanna York. The, it, although one thing that I do remember about the killing of Sister George was I remember reading a listing for it in a newspaper years ago, and they got their sentence structure all wrong. And the mm -hmm. listing said, the killing of Sister George, the story of an ageing actress played by Belle Reed, who is in real life a hard-drinking lesbian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure Beryl was delighted by. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting about watching the killing of Sister George is it's not about them being lesbians. It's just about their relationship and how yeah. the strain and stresses of losing a job and getting older affects a relationship. In fact, it's probably more about a relationship between an older person and a younger person than it is about between oh, yes. two same-sex yeah. same people. Um, what, what, Bunny, what's your views on, what's your thoughts on Sister George? Sister George, you're right, actually. I find that's weird because I think you're right. It is more to do with an older, younger relationship. <laughs> that's big glass house there, um, throwing any stones. But uh, it's, I think that's the more interesting thing that the, the, the lesbian story, Contentations isn't that interesting really about it it's just it's more about uh, her coming out of, of a long job into uh, into the world and, and sort of the shock of that with sister george i find some of it again very stark and quite sort of like very quite nasty some of the, the, the confrontational stuff but counterpointed with absolute hilarious scenes from the soap opera and that's some of my favourite scenes in film at all is those soap opera vignettes that you get throughout it, where they're sort of, um, I, I thought, um, is it a radio, I can't remember if it's a radio play, they're filming, no, they're filming, aren't they? Is mm -hmm. it, yeah. was Sister George a play originally? Yes, it was, and in the play, it was a radio soap. That's why, I think I show. have seen the play version in at some point, and it's because, that's why I'm getting confused, it's a radio play, in the stage play and then it's it's filmed. Yeah, because I remember the scene where she's hiccuping it on the floor. So it has been a while since I've seen it, but so I think Sister George is more in towards entertainment, but it just says a lot of interesting things. And that's such a big difference because that's just made after the decriminalization happens, isn't it? Is it 60? Yeah. The Leather Boy, there's another film called The Leather Boys, which my friend Harriet Thorpe's mother wrote. Uh, and I think that's 64. I think it probably is. I think it's a book originally, and then it, it turned into a film, and then. But that's again slightly watered down in the film version, I think. Um, but again, quite interesting. I I didn't even know that existed until it became Friends of Harriet a number of years ago, and because um, I think for some for some reason that seems to have maybe it's more of a copy. Some things, you know, copyright wise don't always end up in circulation as much from this period. So that some things, Sister George and Victim are really famous, but there's probably a lot of other films we just don't hear much about because they're not kind of on our radar as such. Mm. And, and Sister George has a, course to draw a line from Julian and Sandy the wonderful Hugh Paddock playing the director um in yes. the of the of the soap opera <laughs> who's just fantastic and again playing it very high camp being Hugh Paddock because he was a, he was an out gay man so um he's not holding back there um, well the British tradition again of like a, a, you can be a, a gay man it, it, all those characters you just can't be sexually predatory uh -huh. um, not predatory but you can't be sexual and the only the only exception to that rule uh, happens in the 80s with Julian Clary that's literally the kind of the first time mm. someone's allowed to be glamorous, hilarious, camp, and uh -huh. you know, very flirtatious. Mm. Everything, and, and even since then, it's not ever been quite the same as well. So it's still that kind of yeah, you can be that, but you've got to kind of be a guy in a suit, yeah, a stand-up stand comedian in a guy in a suit. You can be camp, but you can't really talk about 
Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I used to have a, I had a theory that I used to do in stage. I did in one of my shows that every time sort of Graham Norton moved up a channel, they cut another inch off his dick. Do you know? <laughs> from channel five to channel four, to mm. one, and he's essentially just a Ken doll now because there is yeah. that sexuality. There's none of that cheek. Oh, I have a great. Yeah, I, literally, is my theory about being successful in England as a gay man is to is to do that is to <laughs> all, all the all the all the archetype that you have to fall into. If you know, I don't think people set out to do that, but no. they probably go. If you do this, then you'll become. And you literally look at this line. I think there was a documentary on Channel Four called "The Queerest uh, Queerest Men in Britain," and it was it was a charting. From like Frankie Howard and Kenny Williams and yeah. Charles Hawkeye up to kind of at that point, this is about 10, 15 years ago, uh, to that era of uh, Alan Carr and and uh, Graham. Uh, and it's you suddenly go, oh my word, there literally is this line with, with huh. Barry Grayson with John Inman, and everybody just go, oh my god, they're all wearing suits. Oh, it's, a, it's a stronger secession line than the, than the royal family, do you know what I mean? It's, yes, you know, it really is. You can actually kind of see the eras kind of flow into each other, it's really strange. Michael, uh, uh, Sister George was post 67. Do you feel that that was a, a step in the right direction? Do you feel that was a kind of a point of one of these, as I said in the introduction, one of these moments where it was starting to feel a little bit more positive, that we were caring less about the, the sexuality aspect of it? Yeah, I think the, the tide was moving steadily uh, throughout this period in public opinion and political opinion. I mean, the, the big breakthrough was the election of a Labour government in 64, with a small majority, but then a landslide Labour win in 66. I mean, that was that was a necessary precondition for decriminalisation. But it also reflected uh, a, a shift in society. There definitely was a shift towards a more liberal view. And, you know, abortion reform was happening at the same time. So there was a series of social reforms all, all happening at the same time. Uh, I mean, le lesbianism um, was never illegal. There was a move to make it illegal in the 1920s, but it, it founded very quickly. It was always treated differently. What um, was going on in the 1920s that they suddenly thought it needed? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, just, uh, what, was the, what was the issue? <laughs> I, think, I think they just sort of noticed <laughs> that, that yeah. there was a gap in the law. Really. When, the, when ladies started cutting their hair, wasn't it? It was, yeah. you know, it was the uh, fan <laughs> no, I, th I think in, in all seriousness, what it w would have been was that during World War I, uh, women started doing things that they had not been allowed to do before. They worked in factories, they were allowed to play football for the first time. And I think there was a sense that it was all getting in suffrage, that it was all getting a little bit out of hand, that you know, oh, women's yeah. rights getting a bit out of hand and, and that they were doing rather manly things. I think this probably is what drew right. the eye of the legislators oh, to right. them. Oh. Um, because, you know, women were not allowed to play football until the First World War. But, you know, women's football, I mean, talking just, you know, days after... Um, the women's uh, football team, the English women's football team, won the Yay. Uh, you know, women's football was burst onto the scene because people like watching football, but all the, the young men were in the trenches. So they watched women's football in World War I. Um, so it had to be legalised. And then it was criminalised again, women's football <laughs> in the 1920s. So there was a sense of male legislators going after women a bit in the 1920s. But I think, listen, they decided just leave, leave it be, really. Uh, but, you know, so th there was a slightly odd climate i think a, a, a sort of push back against women's rights at that point and michael i have a question actually uh, sorry to interrupt but i what do you think about the perfumo scandal uh, affecting this because i think that was such a lid blowing off uh, mm -hmm. moment do you think it that kind of 
galvanised the swinging 60s. Yes, I think it did. It definitely did. I, I mean, it also showed that straight men could stray and be blackmailed. Mm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the blackmail theme uh, was not uh, necessarily a gay thing. That generally you needed to think about um, making blackmail more difficult for people in public mm. life. I mean, the Vassal one was much more explicit because, it, you know, Vassal was living quite a sort of risque life and was had access to a lot of very high uh, confidential uh, material and, mm. and basically was a KGB agent because he was being blackmailed. But, you know, he would go to parties with um, certain MPs, usually Tory MPs were also there, which basically were orgies, I think. Um, so, you know, th there was a general sense of, of change. I mean, the main effect of the perfume, I think, was just to accelerate the shift towards Harold Wilson and the Labour Party. Mm, definitely. You know, the Tories have just been in power too long. We're getting rather debauched. Uh, you, you can't imagine anything that's ever happening again. But the Tories have <laughs> been in power for, for a long time. Uh, and oh, uh, people might hey, think that maybe time. it was time for a change. Uh, but, so it's hard to We have to make this thought experiment from, from the very different vantage points of 2022. But I think, yeah, it definitely did. And it... And again, it just you know, there's this sort of tumult of, of uh, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, changes in yeah. popular culture, um, a younger generation being more assertive. And Harold Wilson, despite you know being in his personal life quite a conservative person, absolutely getting that tide and riding it into Downing Street. Um, and, you know, my own uh, great mentor, Roy Jenkins, his home secretary, uh, he didn't legislate to enact Wolford, but he, he, he organised that there was time for a private member's bill to get through. So the government supported it, but it was done as a private member's bill. But there was this great revolution. I think Roy Jenkins is the great sort of liberal hero of, the, of, of that age. Uh, but yeah, only a profumo vassal, all these, these things sort of fed into a great sort of pot of, of change. And, you know, what seemed impossible, you know, with the Wolf, I mean, the, 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 there was a Tory MP on the Wolfenden Committee, the MP for Putney, Alec Linstead, and uh, not Alec Linstead, <laughs> Hugh Linstead, so Hugh Linstead. Um, and he was, he, he was basically run out of Parliament. He was run out of public life because he was on the Wolfenden Committee that made this recommendation. Yeah. You know, the, the, they paid a personal price yeah. in the late 1950s they were very brave really that the people who who put their names to the wolf and report and one or two of them dissented some dissented on aspects of it i think one actually dissented totally from the, the recommendation but those who stuck to it had a hell of a time i mean you know the equivalent of trolling big time mm. but then you know 10 years later everything's changed and you, mm. you have roy jenkins in the home office harold wilson in number 10 uh, the swinging 60s uh, and social attitudes had moved an incredible amount, you know, and, and you know, I think we probably have lived through something similar. If we look back, mm. is this happening necessarily? In, but, in terms of Sister George and social attitudes you're talking about, one of the things they did in the film was they filmed a scene in a lesbian club in London that was that was well established and and used the customers as part of it. There was no extras. It was all uh, people who frequented this club. And it's a fascinating insight into gay life and, and, and gay... And it doesn't actually look that different to the kind of clubs that I first frequented when I came out. They're very different now, but I had that kind of... Uh, I remember going to a gay bar in Glasgow and opening, Demonicus, Scott will know, and um, 
We walked in and we thought, there's something weird about this pub and I can't put my finger on it. It took us about 20 minutes to figure out it had windows. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and yes. and this, this is the kind of similar club, this very dingy basement, but fantastic as well. Wonderful. It looked like a real range of personalities. But one of the other standout things about Sister George was... It was an X certificate. And when I was watching it again last night, uh, an X is the, in, in modern day uh, parlance, an 18, uh, the highest classing classification or certification you can get by the British Board of, of Film Censors. And um, I was waiting for the penny to drop as to why it was an X. I thought, have I forgotten? Does someone get clubbed to death violently in this? Or mm. does, does something horrible happen? No, there's just a lesbian sex scene. And it's not even that fruity by today's standards and that's the the main reason they got an x certificate because in back then the only films that got x's were very violent bloody horror movies but um, as well though then just some and not, i mean you could yeah. get out i mean it's, it's literally just some men walking about in and out of rooms and you know and, and it got an x certificate because it just simply because it used the word homosexual you know and that was that was it that was enough to, i do believe with the x there's something about that's quite delicious about the X certificate, though. I think I th I think some films would go after that purposefully yeah. to to appeal to a certain audience. I don't think these are particularly so, but there's I, I, it's it's kind of even up into the eighties when Channel Four were doing like the, the, a film series called the the X certificate stuff. It's still kind of like naughty and you know sort of yeah. like video nasties uh, yeah. kind of a vibe, mm. and. Um, I don't think they were going after that particularly, but I don't. I can't think at the time it would be anything less than an X, but um, maybe no, probably not. But in some ways, it it, it makes it more powerful. Um, but it's yeah, in, in context, you're watching it now seems very soft. Now, not it's an afternoon movie, but it's still it's hardly um, sort of a post watershed anymore. Well, no. sadly, this has to become an X conversation. See what I did there. <laughs> oh, um, as, as we are running out of time. Um, it's been an absolute joy doing episode one. I've really enjoyed this. And uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, so thanks to, to Scott, uh, who will be uh, joining us again for uh, further episodes, and Michael, who again will be joining us. But huge big thanks to Bunny Galore. Thank you so thank much. You, I hope you've had fun. Uh, it's been a pleasure, boys. Thank you very much. Fascinating stuff. Cheers. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so please join us in episode two when we'll be talking about uh, those 70s camp sitcoms that we've been talking about and some of the wonderful fruity characters that we had in that era. Thank you for joining us. And this has been Victim to Heartstopper. It was presented by Charlie Ross, Scott Agnew and Michael McManus. Today's guest was Bonnie Galore. Music was by Ross T. Our logo is by Ben Pinwell and our trailer titles by Brett Underwood. Thank you so much. Head on over to Instagram to join us there for more information about upcoming episodes and lots of extra content. Victim to Heartstopper, that's with a number two in the middle. Victim to Heartstopper on Instagram. Instagram.